Hello and welcome back to the Game Pit. I'm Sean, this is episode 90 and we are picking over the bones of some of those games we've been playing recently. Ronan. Hey Sean, hey everyone, you are very very welcome to join us in the Game Pit this time around. We have indeed got six reviews of six games, a slightly I would say light to medium bent on this show sean yeah yeah we're, we're going from yeah, not, maybe not quite classic but certainly uh older games to I'm, I'm going very classic. new i'm going classic you're going classic, classic right we're going I've from a, classic at least eight times in my notes <laughs> <laughs> i'm sticking to classic we're going from a, a 12 year old classic and we're going right up to the new with a couple of 2017 releases Indeedy do. I am going to hit you with Flatline, Pocket Mars, and First Class, Sean. And I'm going to be looking at Kalos, the classic, as we've decided, the football game, and Ethnos. Oh, you little cult and you hottie, you. Yeah. <laughs> and also, in the middle of the episode, we're going to give you a quick little feature on a game that's currently on Kickstarter that we were lucky enough to get sent a full copy off. We've had a look at it. It's a family game. It's called A Dog's Life. And we'll give you a couple of minutes of an overview of that. See if you like the sound of it in the middle of these reviews. Sean. As always, Ronan, we are proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and to the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore. If you wish to download our episodes, we're on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. And please feel free to leave us a review or a like on iTunes. So let's kick off. Our first game this time out is Flatline, a 2017 release from Renegade Game Studios. have brought us Clank, Fuse, Lanterns, Sentient, made a huge splash in the last couple of years in the industry. And the designer is Kane Klinko, which is not a name that was familiar to me, but he designed Fuse, Covert, Dead Men Tell No Tales, and I've certainly heard of the games that he has designed. Now, this game is a kind of a sequel to Fuse, which was a real-time dice-rolling uh, cooperative game, as is this. We are playing as the team running a med bay on a spaceship which has suffered a bombing. And in fact, kind of during and into the aftermath of this, in real time, each round, we are going to be taking one minute to roll our dice once and then place them onto patients. Now, there's nothing graphic here. It's all very abstracted. The patients are cards with lines where they require certain colored dice to be placed in certain combinations. And once all the lines have been covered over the course of one round or more, that patient is fixed. It's played over a minimum of seven rounds that can be tweaked up and down slightly by what you do in the game. There are between 6 and 17 patients required to be treated, depending upon whether you're playing with 1 to 5 players and how hard you want to make the game. Now, each of the dice have got 6 different colours on them. And when you get to that phase in the round where you roll them once, you have one minute to coordinate your efforts to get them onto these patients because the patients require the different symbols and also different amounts of players to have added those symbols to each line. And all the patients are different and it really is a lot of communication once you've rolled as to how to best use your group resources. Now, there are other things to consider, not just the patients to treat. There are emergencies which will build up and there's part of each round where they 
game may trigger you roll two dice the emergencies linked to those numbers will trigger and make your life a lot harder there are also red alert emergencies which if you don't deal with them on the turn in which they come out they will be put face down if you get too many of them it's an instant loss of the game however if you do deal with them they'll give you one-off bonus powers which you can save there's a limited number you can save and you can use them whenever you want to best effect when you fully treat a patient you can take that patient off the board depending upon this kind of a, a wheel that goes round, there's different areas in this patient so you have to try and time this but you can trigger bonuses or malices depending upon how you've timed that there's eight phases per round but most of them are upkeep really apart from the one where you plan and then you roll in place and that is the very heart of this game sean it's a real-time cooperative game not a genre you've always got along with what were your first thoughts on flatline well ronan as time on and tradition would state that i must i'm going to talk about the theme and the look of the game you kind of build it up as this where we're curing patients and we're saving them and it's a follow-on to the previous game where the bomb goes off and this is uh, this is the sort of fallout of that i didn't feel any of that i felt that the theme may as well be non-existent i never felt like i was treating patients at all in the game yeah agreed okay fair <laughs> <enough>. <laughs> and i think it gave you the the maybe the sense of this is an emergency and we have to care. I, th- I think the language used is evocative. When you set the scene, to me, it did feel like these are emergencies. So that means something and that these are patients. So I want to do my best by them. I think, although the theme slightly pasted on, a different theme pasted on may not have generated the same atmosphere around the game for me. I just didn't get any of that. I just felt like I was... Yeah, there was definitely an emergency. There was an urgency to the game, but that's that's the nature of real But do you time. think that even by them calling emergencies and patients, that didn't at all add to the fact that, oh, this is important, I have to do this well? I think, yeah, maybe give me in the back of my mind that, that sort of reason why I'm doing this, but I, I quickly forgot about it and I quickly just concentrated on the dice, etc. Now, that brings me to the look of the game. I think it is quite a basic looking game. It's not appealing from afar, but when you are playing it and you are sort of playing that real time and everything's going so quickly, you need something that's super functional. And I think that board was super functional. The iconography would stand out from the board enough that you, you weren't searching for things. And yeah, I, I think it was a good fit with the feel of the game. I'm with you. The overall look wasn't particularly to my taste. I didn't think it was really attractive i've got one limitation on that ease of use of the graphics is on the lines where you're putting in the dice it's either one person's got to put them all in more than one person can put them all in or everyone has to add something in order to clear the line or the emergency whatever it might be those particular symbols i didn't feel were clear enough and there were times when that hampered because it's the nature of the game it has to be ultra, ultra clear because you're going so fast. You don't want the actual symbols to hold you that back. And just in that one case, I didn't think they were the best. No, I think you're right. But I think because of the stop-start nature of this, it's not just full-on. And we're getting on to the, the gameplay now. There's something I do like if I am going to play a real-time game. I like that, that those ones that stop and start. XCOM would have been one. This is certainly one where you get that chance to play. I'm never going to like a real-time dice game massively because I just think 
when you add the mechanic to dice, you're just sort of mixing chaos with chaos. So it, it, it never really appeals to me. But the stop start mitigates that a lot for me because you're getting to start planning and thinking and debating and strategizing about how, what's the best way forward. And that is the bit that I really enjoyed about this game. So I wanted to ask you about this, about this level of frantic. I understand you when you say you don't want to be rolling dice constantly while also trying to think because the two things clash and become less strategic. But in Flatline, you roll the dice once. There is possibility of more re-rolls. And with that, that comes its own problems. Maybe we'll branch off there. But someone has to sacrifice a dice and it's not something you're going to do all the time. There's enough options of where the dice can go between the emergencies and the patients. And also there's ability to get more power cubes. Power is the timer in the game, and that's why you only have seven rounds. But there's a chance to refill a couple of times in order to extend the game, which you will need to do for sure. It's not like you're constantly rolling the dice, Sean, and you're kind of doing that, roll, 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 I'm trying to get this, I'm trying to get that. It's one roll. How do we utilize this roll we've got? Is it worth spending the dice to do a re-roll? So I don't get the same feeling from it I do from the actual real-time dice chuckers. No, no, I don't. Again, there's something else that will mitigate sort of my lack of enjoyment for games like that is that you aren't constantly running. It's not like escape. There's no way you can really pay attention to what other people are doing because you're constantly rolling to get the things that you think you need and maybe listening out and people shouting, have you got this, have you got that? This one, no, you are rolling once. You've got the timer it's counting down, so that adds you, adds you a bit of that pressure. That you often forget about. That you often forget about. That, that's the bit that adds your pressure. But somebody will shout, listen, do we need to re-roll? I can sacrifice this. Cool, you're talking about it. And then you roll once again, and then everyone just sort of says, right, I've got this. I've got this. You're, you're making this sound very relaxed and easygoing, by the way. It's not the oh, timer. Yeah, the timer is... You hand in a dice, man. <laughs> it's the timer, man. It's the timer. One minute is no time at all to try and get all the things that you've discussed beforehand. Because you're trying to fill up maybe one, two, three lines. You're already sort of pre-programmed in your mind what you need to be focusing on. Then you've got all those cards that are constantly coming out to back your back. And if you don't start to deal with them, they're going to swamp you. So you, you really are under pressure. And that one minute to do all of that is very, very difficult uh, difficult is definitely a word that springs to mind when i think about that line <laughs> for sure i almost wish there weren't re-rolls because when you re-roll you've got a whole new set of symbols and then you're like oh no if we move those two that you'd already placed and use this new run we could change it and then suddenly like it's hard enough to implement a coherent one plan then my re-roll and then try to get a second plan within the minute it's like oh i'm not sure i want re-rolls to be in there but so so hard to win this game is it just us I think it's another aspect that I quite like about the game is that you are going to get better. Now, people have talked about this as a solo game run. And I think, yeah, you know what? It's going to be a lot easier as a solo game. I think you will be able to crack It's this. not, by the way. <laughs> For you, it's not. But I think <laughs> as a solo, you, you're I'm only... left hand and right hand. <laughs> <laughs> But from in my in my mind, I think it would be a lot easier as a solo. Now we're constantly having to chat, but I think as we even went through that first game, by the end of it, we were starting to get better. And I think the progression, we? yes, we were for sure. The the game was hitting us harder towards the end, and we had more cards out that we hadn't dealt with early. But we were we were getting better at doing things. I think there is a a progression in this game. I think it's something that you can improve. 
that's something I like about any game, really. I think you almost have to improve as a team. Yeah, yeah. You improve your awareness skills. The debate beforehand, you need to know the game a little bit better to, to prioritize what you want to go for. You need to know what other people are like. If you've got a quiet person, you need to know that that person is going to be quiet and you need to tell them, right, shout up, what you got, what you got. That will help them. I always find <laughs> shouting that quiet people to shout up makes them feel a lot better. Maybe not them. shouting, but encouraging them to speak up. <laughs> How much of the game do you think is taken out of your hands, though? Because you said there that as the game goes on, the emergencies stack up. At certain times, I did feel like our priorities were slightly scripted for us in that, okay, these red emergencies are up. We have to do these red emergencies. Now, this patient will give us a really good bonus if we heal them in this turn. This has to be priority number two. And then, all right, let's look where else we can help out. As much as you have to roll with what you roll, <laughs> in flatline, sometimes the circumstances dictate what the team plan should be. Is that just true in any co-op? Or do you think it's more here than other ones? The cards coming out and the different patients that you've got to heal coming out randomly and nothing being the same is both a good thing and a bad thing. Yes, you got you are going to throw up situations where you're going to start to know the game, or even if you don't know the game, it's going to be obvious that you need to do that first. I think a lot, if not all, co-ops, as you said there, will, will provide that. But the longevity that that provides the game you're never going to say see the same since because you could program yourself like this is going to happen next this is going to happen next if it was all programmed and i think that's going to give you lots of longevity yeah it's going to add to your learning curve and it's going to add to your thought oh my god i'm never going to get to to beat this game but once you do start getting better at flatline then it's gonna it's gonna keep the game fresh for you I'm not sure I'm... No, you're not feeling that. Well, things come out in a slightly different order, but I actually wrote down that I'm not convinced by the variety between plays because you're dealing with patients, you're dealing with the same set of emergencies, you've got the same set number of rounds, this is what we're going to face. I know when I pull flatline off the shelf, this is what we're going to have to do. So... I'm not sure variety actually is the huge strength of it. All right, you're not going to see the same patients. There's a big stack of patients, and like I say, you're going to use between 6 and 17, never all of them in any one game. But did you really notice individual patients? Because I just found myself concentrating on individual lines and where they came from, all they came in. Would that feel that varied to me? I didn't see them as coming as an individual patient, but I noticed the patients were different. Like some would have lots of double dice that you had to place. Some of them would be lots of areas where we all had to place dice. Some of them had lots of areas just where one person had to place the but dice. But is that fundamentally changing the game? It's not it changing like the game, it? but it's, it's, it's changing what we have to do and how we do it. Mm. Very slightly, I disagree with you in, in that it keeps there, you keep. I think it just keeps you on your toes slightly because if it was prescripted, you'd know, right? Okay, so we start. I know what you're saying, it's not like a negative, you can't yeah, learn yeah. the game completely. I just saying, I don't think it's a huge positive. I don't I'm think it's sure a huge like, positive, it's just something that adds to it for me. Can, can I imagine there's going to be like a game of flatline that stands out from amongst the other games of flatline to go, oh, do you remember that incredible thing that happened in that one game? Or is it all going to be, no, this no. game experience is, whatever level you think it is and what your enjoyment is, you know that's what you're going to get out of it. No, I think it's just 
just enough to keep you on your toes, keep you thinking. You, you're not going to beat the game by just remembering the process that you have to go through. It's always it's a, it's a consistent different. midfield anchor man, not the flare wide players that you keep putting in your top fifty. <laughs> there you go. All right, you ready to sum up for us on flatline, Sean? Yeah, Ronan. I am not a fan of real time games. I'm not especially real time dice rolls, but flatline does enough to mitigate against the things that I really don't like in real-time games to make it enjoyable for me to play. I do love the the break in the middle and around that one-minute craziness that where I can sit down, discuss, and we can talk about what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, and then you get the, the frantic dice roll. Well, not the frantic. You get the dice roll and then the frantic discussions around the dice rolling, which don't drag it down as much as I thought they might do. It's probably one of the best in its field for me. I think XCOM is still my favourite real-time game, but this is up there, so something I wouldn't refuse a game of, and that's high praise from someone like me who doesn't like real-time. That's flatline for me. That's like a Game of the Year award in its class. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, wow, that is... I did say to you, if you're going to like a real-time dice game, I thought this might be the one, because the planning... And I'm the opposite with Sean on these games. I really like them. I really like the real time. I like being brought out of my comfort zone and made to work. And Flatline requires not just cooperation, but also coordination amongst the team. We can't take each other's turns for each other. Each player has to be contributing to their max because of the difficulty in it. The game constantly pulls you in different directions. I didn't find it shouty and frantic during the dice roll. I found it more, okay, you were talking quickly, but actually clarity of communication and clarity of thought was much more important than volume and speed and screaming at each other i think it's tough for a casual audience who might go for it who may be like the 10 minutes of fuse this is longer 45 minutes i think probably a bit longer than that for each game of flatline very fun fits into the hobby game niche because you have to be a good player to win it and flatline is a big hit for me Okay, so we're going to move on to Ethnos or Ethnos, and it's coming from Asterian Press, and go on, it's coming from Cool Mini or not as well, because it's <coughs> designed by Paolo Mori, two to six players, right. It's not a lot of theme going on in this game. You've got the land of Ethnos, and you are calling on the help of fantasy creatures to control that fantasy land. Not really sure why you're doing it, but you are. There you go. On the table, you're going to have a map with six regions, and these regions are in different colours. And there are 12 decks of cards, and these represent 12 tribes of creatures. And they include dwarves, elves, Ronan's favourites, giants, merfolk, halflings, and so on. These cards come in six different colours, and these colours match the regions on the board. You're trying to collect sets of either the same colour or the same creature in order to place a marker on the board. And you're also going to score points at the end of each age for the size of each set of cards you put down. Now, the leader, which is going to be your front card of these sets that you place down, is very important. Each of the races has a unique race power, and the leader will dictate what one of those race powers is going to be put into play. They also dictate where you can place your control marker. It's got to match the color. On your turn, you're going to simply 
pick up one card from either a face-up row of cards or the deck, or you're going to place your set down and place a marker on the board. The twist is, you're going to put all the cards that you haven't used from your hand face-up for other players to choose from, and yourself eventually if they're still remaining. Scoring is for the area control. You've got two or three ages, depending on the player count. You're going to score for area control of each of the areas and for the sets that you accumulate. And that's Ethnos, Ronan. What say you? I say it's curious use of John Howe's artwork, Sean, which has got a strange juxtaposition and there's a weird clash of art styles going on. It wasn't very pleasing to the eye on first impression. I think the board cover art is beautiful because it's John Howe. It's almost like it's in a shroud of grey. It really doesn't stand out from the crowd. You look at that on, on the shelf with other games, your Star Wars Rebellion or your Clank, uh, games that I'm literally sitting looking at now, and it just fades into the background. It's a really weird choice of art for the front of a game. Then you get into the actual board and the cards. And the cards, they're not rounded off at the edge. They're quite stark, bright colours. The board itself looks very basic. Just I mentioned it was a cool, cool me or not game. Just like almost like the antithesis of what they're about. They're usually about flashy, stylish eye-catching artwork this one is the complete opposite it almost looks like it's a new company what i don't get is what possessed you to buy it bling bling man what's going on what possessed me to buy it was initially yeah before we put that talking about having played it yeah yeah what? sec because you say it is it's kind of muted and even the plastic pieces are very bright which doesn't go with the rest of the artwork. yeah yeah it's, kind of, it's, yeah it's not a feast for the eyes why did you go for it I'd heard so much about it. I've listened to a few podcasts that had been raving about it. Uh, I watched Tom Vassell's review. He raved about it. Everyone said it was a, such a simple premise, and we'll get into that. And it delivered a lot more than the sum of its parts, pretty much. So it kind of had me thinking, okay, almost felt like it was going to be like a bit of a hipster game, but with a fantasy overlay. But then... I hadn't really looked at the board and the cards until I actually bought the game. So that, that's why I bought it, just on the recommendation of a lot of podcasts and reviewers that I trust. Cool. Well, if there are podcasts that people trust to make buying decisions? <laughs> just, it was a whim. I had some Amazon points. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So when you start playing, obviously what you're trying to do is you're trying to create these sets in your hand. But also one of the things you have to consider in Ethos is what racial powers you want to use because the combination of racial powers that come out, every game is going to be different and every game is going to pull you in a different direction. It's going to be quite situational. And there's that quite strong pull, Sean, between trying to direct your effort towards particular races and building up your merman points or using halflings to just gather set points because they don't score every way they, they all do different things and actually taking what's on offer and this is almost a rending thing at the heart is that there's this tease this offer of strategy but very limited selection when you're trying to take cards it really doesn't take off a breakneck pace at all i think you start with one or two cards 
and then you're picking up one card at a time. So you're not like bringing loads of cards into your hand, and that never really changes unless you've got cards that, that allow you to keep things or the wizard that allows you to dive into the deck. And yeah, oh, the card that allows you to keep things, yeah. Mm. The card that allows you the, to keep things is the elf. Yeah, the elves. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about them, but go finish your point before I start talking about. <laughs> and we're not allowed to play with elves in any game that Roland plays with anymore. That's not true. That is not, <laughs> Tolkien elves are fine. Oh, okay? are they? <laughs> <laughs> they fit in there. Well, so, <laughs> there's a funny thing in most games whereby so the game starts and there are the tableau of cards on offer, and you can make some choices. You can say, I want that colour or I want that race. And the selection dwindles then as people take them. And then there's this really weird dip until players start playing the first sets down and cards get starting return from their hands to the tableau and you've got choice again. Because from going from this initial choice and collecting sets, you're then back to fishing off the top of the deck until either you get what you want or someone else plays something and then you go, oh, okay, there's a couple of cards to choose from. I want this one or that one. I found that with newer players, almost every time we get into the third, fourth round, there's that funny dip in choice, and you're getting these looks from people going, "What? What is this game? I'm just drawing randomly at the top of the deck until like this is what?" And you have to say to them, "Wait, stick with it. We'll get there. We'll get there." Strange design choice. It happens mid-game as well. You get that slow start. And then it can happen in mid-game where actually people have decided... We have the reset of the eras as well. Yeah, yeah. But even even mid... Marcus stay on the board. Even mid-era. Like, because you might get a certain... People say, you know what? It's getting towards the end of the era. I'm just going to put down, like, sets as I get them. So there might be a few on available. Right, okay, I'm going to have a a set of three. So the, the fewer you put down, the less likely you are to have gathered loads of cards into your hand to put down for everybody else to choose from. So that, that it's obviously a, a tactic to use. It's the fewer the cards that you put down in your sets, the fewer people have got to choose from, but then you're not going to score massively for those sets. And as the game progresses... It could be good to establish a ball position like that. Yeah, you can establish a ball position, but I think as the game progresses, obviously you have to, you have to go one more with your cards, then you've got counters in an area so if you've got two counters in an area you must place three cards to be able to place your next token so obviously the game sort of pushes you along but you can certainly start off that way and i think you've tried that tactic a couple of times we had that funny little evolution didn't we i think the first game people were trying to collect larger sets which certainly i've done since then in other games and it's worked because you've got big points for large sets but also after that happened, I just went for the play one card, get a thing down, play two cards, get my, and just tried to cover the board with my markers. And then that winning that game, and I think we went, oh, and started thinking there was slightly more to this game. And I think it's definitely all affected by what racial powers available. I mean, if you've got, like I mentioned earlier, the halflings, you can build up huge sets quite quickly and score 21 points for having those six cards in there. If they're not in there and you've got a different set, maybe there are people who are more flexible on the board. Mm. So it's easier to get lots of markers out quickly yeah. because the burpy power is you can go in any colour. So you don't have to build up, you know, you can use red cards even if you're full of, you know, two or three markers in red. You can use it to get a position in purple and grab board position. And what powers available really affects how the game works. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for instance, the, I always find the dwarf a, a quite an interesting choice because the dwarf actually increases your set collection by one. If you put down a set of four, it's actually a set of five if a dwarf is your leader. 
that is always a choice because you might have other things that you want to do, other cards that you want to be a leader to help you on the board, but you've always got the back of your mind, but that's going to score me quite a lot of points in the, at the end of the day. So do I, do I sacrifice by doing that? So the Dwarf's always an interesting one for me. Yeah. Do you know what's not an interesting one in Ethnos? Go on, have your elf rent. But it's, this is just chance, all right? They happen to be the elves. <laughs> they ruin the game. So the L special power is when you lay down a set of cards and the elf is your leader, you retain all the cards in your hand. It's really powerful because you don't allow... You know, if, if I've got to lay down three cards out of my hand and I, I play three in a set and my other three go down and the other players get a choice of them, I'm giving them such an advantage that often I will choose the elf to be my leader if I can so that they don't get the advantage because it won't come around to me and I won't get a very good card next time. But what's happening then is there are so rarely cards available for choice that every player in the game is just fishing off the top of the deck. And honestly, every game I've played with elves in it in Ethnos has been not as good as the other games. They're a terrible, terrible race power. I don't like them at all. Yeah, I I do get what you're saying. They kind of feed into and extends those periods where there is nothing available on the table for you and you're just constantly skimming off the top of the deck. Yeah, I get that. Just I think fish the dwarf, it. Go fish, go fish. Yeah, I think the dwarf mitigates against that slightly because it gives you that choice between the two. It's too it's too obvious and too easy to choose an elf as your leader and just keep all those cards in your hand for your next go, especially if you've built up a couple of sets. It's always horrible to throw away a cup, a set that you've built up. <laughs> well, I haven't, I haven't done it. I don't particularly like the house rule, especially not a game that hasn't been around for a year or two and people have played it and, and really found that house rule is necessary. But Sean, your thoughts, and I, I really think the next time I play Ethnos, I might ask to do this. Just always a minimum of three cards available in the tableau just so that you've got some choice you feel like you've got a little bit more control on what you're trying to build up what do you think i like it and i don't like it i like it because yeah i like the choice and there are those moments in the game where you you are sort of fishing off the top but i think that they're not that often especially if you don't have the elves involved and i think it is a viable tactic for people to stop other people getting by playing smaller sets i think that tactic goes out the window to a certain degree if you have always got a selection so yeah i can see where you're getting it and i'd certainly be happy to give it a go but i do kind of like that aspect of it it might be a viable tactic but without that minimum cards available as with other things in the game i find that at higher player counts it all breaks down because once you start getting up towards the five players and above, the game to me doesn't really seem to work that well. No. There's still six regions. The competition is too much. You're going through the decks far too quickly. You can't really establish everything. You're just trying to rush to get sets out because each era is going to finish so quickly. And what's funny to me, is Sean, is those positive reports that come out from Simon Expo and whatever it might be a, a month or two ago when the game was first, before it was even released, people having a look at it, seemed to be a higher player count. So I was quite excited to play it. And when I did play it with five and six players, it was my least favourite games of it. I've played it at five, not six, and yeah, they certainly not as enjoyable. I really enjoyed this at even two. I think two to four, 
is the player count that this should be. I think you're absolutely right. I think it, it was gone in a flash with the higher player counts. It was. It was just a bit too much happening in, in too quick a time frame. I agree. I think this should be a two to four player game run. I'm going to say three to four, but you know. Well, you know I, enjoy, I enjoyed my two same player same games. Same I, I enjoyed it. Uh, other two player games. But okay, cool. When you touched upon... Actually, you turned into a negative, one of my positives for the game. At oh. two to four player, I think the time frame is just spot on. For what you're getting out of this game, it plays in ooh, about half an hour, 40 minutes if you're a bit slow. Absolutely perfect for me. That is a fantastic point, Sean. And you're right. It's something we, we, we probably should have mentioned earlier. It's a very quick game. For all that there is times of frustration and times that you're just digging, the game's over so quickly that you're not sitting around being bored. Each turn is very, very quick. It's pick up a card or it's lay down some cards and put one marker on the board. Every marker makes a difference to scoring. Okay, when someone takes a card on top of the deck, you don't know what they've got. It doesn't make much difference to you. It's not the most exciting turnover. It's also a one-second turn. And it's your go. And boom. And let's go around the table. And we're all involved. And we're all interacting on the map. You read that rule book in within five minutes you've got an understanding of how to play this game within 10 minutes you're up and running you don't need to refer to that rule book ever again it's a very very simple rule set in ethnos and greater than the sum of its parts in my in my opinion oh you're getting close to summing up i am let's go for it okay i like ethnos i think the different race combos really change it up i think it fits into its niche perfectly well off a three to four player <laughs> 30 to 40 minute filler game with a bit of brains and a bit of luck and a lot of interaction and very quick playing this is a good filler solid yes happy to play it yeah for me ethnos it's going to hit the table and you're going to be up and running so quickly the creature powers in the game turn it from interesting but mediocre into a really good and clever game the creature powers also give it longevity although i do agree with ronan to a certain degree about the elves i think you possibly need to rule them out but you've got 11 others starting to listen my friend (laughs) the anti-elf movement is gaining power (laughs) there's your longevity just mixing in those 11 creatures (laughs) so yeah for an area control sex collection bit of push your luck it's played quickly keeps you on your toes it's gone before you start getting anywhere close to being bored yeah not big fan of the looks of the game but this game proves that looks aren't everything so i'm a big fan of ethnos Okay, for our last game of this half, it's another quick-ish game. It's Pocket Mars. Two to four players, 15 to 30 minutes. 2017 release from Board and Dice Games. We reviewed Super Hot recently, and here we're back for Pocket Mars, another one of their games. The designer is Mikhail Jagodzinski, who has got no other big designs, really. So this is his chance to make a splash in the market. Players are the initial colonists of Mars. Working to use both a hand and tableau of four cards to get seven colonists cubes from Earth to Mars using their shuttle and get them inside one of five buildings on the planet, although only four are habitable. Each of the cards in the game is one of five colours and has a number on there, and those five colours are linked to the five buildings in Mars. Each player is going to always have, at the beginning of their turn, two cards in their hand and two cards in what is called their prep 
module. Now these cards each have two actions on them. When you play a card from your hand as your action, you just get to do the top action on the card. Probably slightly more often with a bit of planning, you're going to be playing cards from your module as it's called, the two card tableau. Now, when you pop it down, it's got a number from zero to seven available on it. If it is a higher number than the previous number played on that building, you are going to get one of your colonists from your spaceships into your building. You have to get your colonists from Earth onto your spaceship to be able to do that. But this is the whole point of the game, because once someone has got seven of them on there, the game is going to finish. You're also then going to trigger the bottom action on the card and trigger the building ability. Each building has got a unique building ability. When you place colonists onto the buildings, mostly they go into the left-hand space, which is two points for each colonist on any building in there. There's also a restricted other space that can have a maximum of one or two colonists, depending upon the player count, and they're going to be worth four points at the end of the game. So you're trying to get them in there and somehow manipulate them around, usually using the green building power. You're also going to need to build up power, speaking off it, on your spaceship in order to fuel a load of your actions. You're also going to be looking to cycle cards, be it from your hand to a module, from your module out of the game, so that you don't get stuck. Because lots of cards need fuels. You're looking to make clever little combos and use colours off each other. And you don't want to be stuck flat. And cards will allow you to do that. You're also going to be able to power up from cards in hand, as I said. So sometimes a purple card from your module will be more powerful if you have a purple card in your hand. You're going to be trying to do clever things like this. The end of the game, once someone's got those seven colonists down, you're going to get points. One for every colonist in your spaceship, two for you in the building, four for in that special spot. Also, the most energy left is going to get one point from that player. If you've got at least one colonist in each of the four habitable buildings, you get a two bonus VP. And there's a three VP for having four in one building. It's possible to get all five bonus VPs if you play the perfect game. Sean Pocket Mars. Let's have your thoughts. You haven't played it, but I reckon you've got a few questions to fire at me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is one that we picked up at the UK Games Expo, and it's something that I really wanted to play. I'm not quite sure how we managed to play some of the deeper games in this week's episode, and I still haven't got a game of Pocket Mars going. Right, I'm going to start off. I've got a few questions for you. I think it looks really nice from what I can see. It looks very stylish. The iconography and the coloured cards, they look really stylish, and the rockets look good. How well does the theme come across? Mm, next question. <laughs> <laughs> when you first approach Pocket Mars, right, it feels small scale. There's small actions. Is there a small decision space? It's all very restricted, and you kind of feel like... Mm, I'm just moving a cube from here to there and a cube from here to there when I playing a card and it gives me one out. You're not really feeling it. And although that space you're in expands as you play it and you realise the restrictions of how you handle these four cards each turn are making you think in different ways to try and be clever and combo up, the theme of what you're doing never really comes through. The theme is more that it's a race. That's what the game mostly feels like. It's throwing up problems at you. It's not making it easy for you to play efficient actions. And you're trying to do that all the time and race to move your colonists and churn them through. But could a lot of other themes be pasted on there? They definitely, definitely could. Okay, okay. So into sort of one of the main mechanisms or possibly the main mechanism within the game. Each of the cards has many different uses that you can use them for. Does that ever get confusing or overwhelming, or is it is it simple enough that it's just a, a decision you've got to make? It is simple, 
It's not confusing in and of itself. The cards are well laid out. Everything's clear. It's very simple iconography. It's got a ton of icons in this game at all. But it's not easy. And you will often find yourself in a position where you go, oh, why have I done that? Or I can't even use this card in my prep module and it's stuck there and I can't get it out and I can't power it. How have I got myself in this situation from this very easy game? Everything works. Every, every card you look at, you go, yeah, that, that makes sense. Stop makes sense. The bottom makes sense. The four building actions never change. Moving a colonist you know, always makes sense. Earth to spaceship, spaceship to building. None of that is complicated. It should be really easy to trigger all these things off. And yet, like any clever game, it somehow restricts you and makes your brain twist itself around very easy processes. Okay, final question from me, Ron, and then we'll hand over to you and you can tell everybody anything else you've got to say about the game. So it is a quick game. How did you find learning the game? Because I know rule books are one of your bugbears. You do like a a good rule book does this fit into your good rule book school or no yeah decent rule book very small very quick but like i say cause it's all very simple that there's not that many different moves you can do it's, it's a tiny little booklet size it's not even a5 a6 i don't know what it is a a12 no it's small put it that way smaller than a normal envelope <laughs> and easy to learn and easy to get the rules down not the easiest to teach because I'm going to go back to the previous answer off because trying to teach people that you're going to get stuck. Like you're going to get yourself a green card and you have to take turns to like t- throw a card away to take one energy or you're going to have to use a card in someone else's prep module. You teach people, you say you can use a card in someone else's prep module in order to take a very limited action and give them an action because you get the building action and they get the action from the card and they go, well, why would I ever do that? It's ridiculous. And then they find themselves doing it. So the rules are easy to teach, but how to play it well, a bit harder until someone's had one game. And, and you know, it gets in their head and they start thinking, wow, I played that terribly. How am I going to play it next time? The answer is going to be probably terribly. Okay, Ronan. So I'm starting to get actually quite a positive vibe from you about this, but I'm not quite sure. Do you want to sum up and let us know what you think of the game? I think Pocket Mars is a tight, quick game not easy to play well you can get stuck and have to take a risk and and try and maybe mix your cards up and spend a couple of terms to get going again and like i say it's a race game so every time you get stuck you start getting frustrated but probably everyone else can get stuck at some point and you're all there's a bit of to in and fro in and this is all in under 30 minutes it does not hang around it's after super hot that i really liked sean didn't love it but i did this another from water dice quick unusual card game that's not exactly like anything else i've played and for me it's another hit okay so that was our review on pocket mars now you're gonna have a slight musical interlude before you will hear ronan's dulcet tones and he's going to be telling you all about a dog's life So as promised, we're going to give you a quick oversight on a game that's on Kickstarter right now. It's Dog's Life. We were lucky enough to get sent a full copy. and We've played it through, or at least I have, with my family. And we get sent a few Kickstarter games 
And as you know, if you listen, we don't talk about them all that often because we're only going to tell you the ones that we think are worth backing. So there's a bit of a spoiler for this one. It's on Kickstarter until 7th September 2017. It's from Beton Games. This is a reprint. And it's about you taking on the role of a dog, going around town. You're trying to get three bones, bring them back to wherever your den is on the board and bury them. Each turn, you can have a certain number of action points to use to move around the spaces on the board and to perform different actions. And the actions you can do are things like search trash cans for bones or beg at restaurants or collect newspapers and deliver them to different addresses around the town. You're also trying to avoid the dog catcher the whole time. At the end of everyone's turn, they're going to roll a dice and move the dog catcher as far as the dice rolled in whatever direction they want. As long as they carry on in a direction, so you can set the dog catcher down little paths and what have you. And if the dog catcher gets near to a dog, they have a chance of escaping. If it lands on a dog, that dog will be captured, taking the dog pound. It'll be back in play pretty soon though other things you can do are you can put down pee markers after you've drunk some water and that will block movement through a space and any other dog that tries to go through that space will have to end their turn there your food will count down each round and you're gonna have to eat to keep yourself fed otherwise you end up going to the pound as well that's something to consider as you're going around where you're going to find food at the restaurant in trash cans wherever it may be now each dog is individual and they get an individual deck of action cards. And whenever you resolve certain actions, you turn over from your deck of action cards, six actions are there, and it's going to tell you the results you've got. So, for example, the poodle is really good at begging at restaurants because it's such a cute dog. So when they go to a restaurant and beg, they like to see more food on there than, for example, the Alsatian is because maybe people wouldn't give as much food to an Alsatian. Maybe they're not quite as cute. I think they are, but, you know, we're just going to go with what I said here. There's an ability to... Kind of have a little fight with each other now and then. Dogs can attack each other. If you're the boxer dog, when you turn over from your deck of cards, it's not universal, but mostly you're going to be stronger at fighting than the smaller dogs and able to steal their bones. But probably the smaller dogs are quicker. They might have more action points. They're looking to either lay P to block you or to run away using their more action points. The mongrel, probably better at searching in bins and get better results from there. Wherever it may be, you're going to have to play to your strengths and be a little bit smart and get a little bit lucky to win at a dog's life. There's a bit of take that in this. There is a possibility to slightly miss a go. That's something to be aware of. It's very much a family game aimed at slightly older kids uh, and make sure that they're okay with being able to deal with that. Turns are really quick. You've always got a chance to get back into the game the next turn. Again, it's about to turn over your action card. You've got a chance to escape from the pound and get straight back in there. You won't get stuck in for long, not endlessly out of the game. You are represented in the game by an individual dog figure and they are little proper minis of dogs off the breed of whatever you are and they look like the pictures on the cards and it adds that bit of individuality that certainly my family greatly enjoyed my 11 year old daughter absolutely adored it and that is definitely the market it's aimed at is kids i say between 8 and 13 something like that or dog fans and to be honest with you, sometimes, you know, you dread getting out games, especially maybe this theme. You're like, oh, really going around playing a dog's game? Myself and Rachel as proper gamers actually enjoyed the game as well. I promise you this is true. This for me is a family game winner. And thank you very much for the copy, Bet on Games, because we are keeping it on the shelf and it is getting played. Sean, any thoughts on the dog's life? Yeah, well, from a distance, right, it really does look good. Those dog minis look excellent. The board looks really nice. I love the piddle traps. 
Got to say that. <laughs> and do you know what? They're surprisingly thinky. Honestly, <laughs> dog piddles. You're like, oh god, because sometimes they force you to go around nearer where the dog catcher is. Yeah, and you're yeah. Like, shall I suck up this rubbish turn, or should I take the risk of the dog catcher? Yeah. Right. Just got a quest, couple of questions, Ryan. So you said the dogs play differently. You went into a little bit of detail there. How differently do they play? Is it a selling point of the game that these all play differently, and you have to adapt your game slightly? I think it's a selling point for both sort of markets because when you tell a, a child that you are this particular dog and you are good at this, you are good at that, it gives them the story. It gives them individuality and they go, oh, okay. So, and it gives them an idea both on strategy as well. And they go, oh, I know what I should be doing. I understand how this works. And also, as the adult, it adds a bit of thought into your game. You're not just going around meaninglessly and it's chance. You're not rolling a dice. It's not a random deck of cards. It's a deck of cards that stacks. So guess what? If I'm good at delivering newspapers, I'm going to go, I'm going to get newspapers and I'm going to deliver them. I'm more likely to get a bone and I'm more likely to win. There is that bit of luck in there. When you turn over, you might get unlucky. You might just get some food or whatever. But that kind of evens it up for a family game as well. So I actually think it's quite important as a selling point that you go, here you go, this is your character. Come and be this character. It works for you, Sean, in grown-up games. (laughs) Indeed, it really does. So the dog catcher is the big baddie in the game. Now, how much of a threat is the dog catcher and what does it lend to the game? It's really player count dependent. So when you're playing with higher numbers, because it will be a longer time, it's up to six players, because it's a longer time till it comes around to your go, then it can be quite a big threat because four other players might be controlling it to get it all the way around to you. So you definitely need to be aware of it. You can't base your whole strategy on it. If you get caught, you get caught. It's a pain, but it doesn't ruin everything. When you get caught, you just drop the things that you had. It gives the other dogs a chance to pick them up, but okay, you just start again. Everything's quite quick and you're flowing. Anyway, and in fact, the game when you're playing two or three player, you control two or three dogs yourselves anyway. So it works best with more dogs on the board, but that's when you're most at risk from the dog catcher. Okay, so final point for me. It's not not a question. It's just uh, an observation. This is the type of game that it, it almost felt like one of those games that you see when you go into like the bigger supermarkets like a Tesco's or a Sainsbury's. And it's one of those ones that you kind of rule out as being in the hobby as, oh, that's not going to be good enough. And it, and it kind of, when it first came out, I thought, oh, that's going to be like that. But then the more I read about it, the more I looked into it, having heard what you said, having having seen the final product, it's, it's really something I really want to play now. So, yeah, it, it looks like it's a, a polished and well-thought-out product that it's going to, as you said, when it's going to appeal to a lot of different people. It's almost a victim of its own presentation because it looks so nice. You think, oh, it can't be a hobby game. Mm. It, it is. It's a family hobby game. There's some thought to it. Like I say, go and have a look at the Kickstarter page. If you often play with a family and they like the idea of being doggies, you can do much, much worse. This is a game that my family have really enjoyed and we will continue to. That's a dog life on Kickstarter until the 7th of September, 2017. Okay, so we are going back to 2005, and as Ron has now decided, this is a classic from there. It's a classic. It's a classic. Spoiler. It's Kalos, designed by William Attia, coming from Istari Games, playing two to five players. In 1289, King Philip of France has decided to strengthen his borders, and he's chosen the town of Kalos to build a castle. 
And as players, we are master builders, those good old master builders that pop up in these Euro games. And we are trying to gain the king's favour by building the castle and the surrounding buildings. This is essentially a worker placement where you're going to be constructing buildings along a road to and from the castle. What are the buildings going to give you? You're going to give you resources. They're going to give you money. You're going to construct new buildings along the road. All very sort of samey. You've said it all before. You've seen it all before. One thing that kind of changes this slightly is there is a provost and a bailiff, and these are counters that move along the road and that can be manipulated by the players themselves. The provost is going to decide what buildings are going to be activated on each turn, and this is after the players have placed their workers. Interesting. The bailiff is going to follow the provost around, and the bailiff is going to decide when the game ends. So the manipulation of the provost and the bailiff are going to change the game length, and they're also going to decide what actions can be taken on the game. That's Kalis, Ronan. Your initial thoughts? So we kind of had a chat about Kalis. It's one of those games that sometimes we like to cover older games to bring them maybe back into focus or to remind people about them or to see whether they've stood up over time. Or We just discover these older games ourselves the first time, so not everyone can possibly know them. Now, when we were chatting about covering Kalis on this episode, we actually said it was going to be quite hard to discuss because everything we mention about it sounds cliched it's cubes you turn them into points and you get a bonus and you can build some buildings to collect cubes the reason is is because this kind of set the standard this is the one that set the cliches now it wasn't the first game ever to turn cubes into cubes but it's definitely one of the first ever worker placements and not only that but it did things that we think of as new or innovative or a slightly different twist in worker placement games still today like building your own worker placement spaces, evolving worker placement spaces, building over the worker placement spaces, being able to collect the resources to go down different strategic paths. This was doing it all 12 years ago, Sean. It's hard to discuss Kalis and not sound cliched. Well, it has got a load of those recognisable Euro tropes, like as you said, resource collection, construction, you've got an economic engine building. You're, grumpy man on the cover. Grumpy man on the cover, grumpy king on the cover. You're, even the vying for first player, this was one of the first games that actually started... Like, okay, if you, you finish first and you put into your, that space, you're going to be first player the next round and building ownership. So, yeah, all stuff that we've come to be very familiar with. And you, I only played Kalis for the first time recently. So I was kind of coming at it from I hadn't played it before. So, yeah, I was thinking, oh, it is very samey. But then you have to think that this is from 2005. I'm going to pull you up about something. Uh, something I was thinking about as well. So we keep saying it's like a standard Euro, right? But when we talk about the difference between Euro games and thematic games, one of the things is about the amount of interaction there is and how solitary it is. This is a game from back when Euro didn't mean you build your little engine, I build my little engine, we run them, we see who gets there first. This is confrontation. This is in your face. This is sniping each other out. This is setting each other up for a fall. It's constant races to get to something first and what you're prioritising. Getting in the castle, building most in the castle this turn, so I'm the one who gets the extra bonus and you don't. Building enough in the castle so that you're blocked out and you're going to lose a load of points at the end of this era. Every action you're doing is 
in some way against someone else. Now, that's true of all work Facebook games, of course, because when you go there, you block space, someone else can't use it. But even more so in Kalis, it kind of feels like we call mm, a game with this much of interaction a hybrid nowadays. Confrontation is the word that springs to mind when we talk about Kalis. But yeah, confrontation, it's all around in worker placement, but in Kalis it does feel that little bit nastier because you have that spectre of the provost hanging over every decision you make. Yeah, you can play it super safe and place your workers in in an area where the provost isn't going to realistically going to be able to get to on this turn. But they're the rubbish moves. They're the ones that aren't going to get you anything. You have to take a risk in this. And people are going to be mean to you. And they are going to stop you taking it. And that's why the provost elevates this game beyond those euro tropes and it makes it something that is going to stick with you and stick with you for a long time and as the test of time is proving if you can stick with it if you can take it if you can because it it can be trying should we put it that way I've, i've explained this one to ronan much to his merriment Myself and Natalie had a game of this. Now, we don't particularly like being mean to each other when we play. So, we tend to skirt around nasty games and we tend to see if there's a a diplomatic way of playing this. Now, completely uh, my fault. Midway of this game, I said to her, listen, this is supposed to be one of the nastiest games out there. It's supposed to be really confrontational. I think we're missing a part of the game by not doing it. And she said, oh, yeah, but it's kind of what we do. And I proceeded mid-game, not from the start, mid-game, just to move that provost to stop her doing things and ended up wiping the floor with her to the point where she now hates the game (laughs) because of what I did. Well, she doesn't hate it, but it's something she's going to be very wary of playing. Now, that brings me to the, the thing. Is this game for everyone, Ronan? No, in many ways. (laughs) In fact, it might be for quite a limited select few people. And not only that, but at certain times, well, I am not always up for a game of Kalis, let me tell you. It might be after a long day at work. may have been some challenging conversations with whoever it may be you're talking to. Kalis is not the game to chill out. And relax on and just go with it and have a nice mellow time. That's a that's definitely a different game, an unwinding game. Cadence is a winding up game. And the reason I feel like it is like a winding up game is that you're coiling up all the time like a spring and tension's building and you're deciding when to pounce and when to go for things. So if you don't like confrontation, don't play Cadence. If you're not willing to have turns ruined, don't play Cadence. If you don't like cube churners, don't play Kalis. If you like those things, you have to play Kalis because it does them all so well. Okay, Ronan, the look of the game. There's loads of different editions of Kalis. It's been reprinted quite a few times now, always with the Frowning King on the front, which is good because we like the Frowning King. But I think, yeah, it all kind of fits into that sort of 
Euroy look to the game. I don't remember any any memorable issues with the iconography, so I think that's all, all pretty cool. But yeah, it doesn't stand out of the crowd looks wise. It's kind of notoriously ugly, really, isn't it? <laughs> it's not even like very nice colours for the cubes. Ugly, like, ugly is like a bit harsh. It's not a good looking game, my friend. If you all love this game, you've got to get past its looks to see what's shining underneath. Here's one thing, though. I was trying to think, what is the, what's the key to Kalis? To me, the key is timing. Timing comes up again and again and again in how the game works. There's the timing in when a player passes, he immediately makes all the actions for everyone else more expensive. Then if another player passes, they become more expensive even so. And the timing of when your fellow players are going to pass can hugely affect your round and how much money you have. There's a timing of things like if you take the space where you can move the provost forwards or backwards three spaces, not only have you got the timing then of that, but then when you choose to go into the danger area or not, whether it's you going in there as a trap to lure people in so that they go in there and then you, you screw them over or you're waiting. to It's still cheap enough to go in, but you're taking the spaces and everyone else is not going to jump in with you because you're really going to move it onwards. Then timing when you pass so that it's best to pass late on so you can see exactly where the provost is. However, by that point, it might be too late. If you pass early and push it in the direction you want to be pushed in, sometimes it can dissuade others from spending the money. To go, yeah, it, time into when to go in the castle. When, if I build two places in the castle this turn, I'm going to get the extra bonus and then I can claim that bonus and the time of how that works. All timing, Sean. It's like a clever clockwork mechanism. Yeah, timing is a major factor in it. Uh, obviously, you've got the economic engine. I think there's a little bit of bluffing going on, as you kind of touched on there with luring people in. The timing of getting the buildings into the certain buildings that I think are better than other buildings to build, and it's getting to those first. Or like it's, getting hold of a building that produces certain colour wood and then building on the early buildings that produce that same colour cube. So that you yeah, get yeah. coming into yours so on your you, own. Yeah, commodity. <laughs> you, you, you're Clicking it all together. So yeah, you yeah, can go there, yeah. man. But I'm going to get some free stuff as well. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Yeah, yeah. That was definitely something I looked to do just to make sure that if you want wood, you're coming to me. You're giving me <laughs> something. <laughs> These buildings are definitely the grandparents of the Lords of Waterdeep buildings. They're the same thing. Right? Yeah, you can go there, but I'm going to get something off it. Is it worth it? Absolutely, but you can't you can't block the spaces of Lords of Water. Imagine if you could; that'd be really mean. Cool. <laughs> There's an expansion. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about it. Okay, probably time to sum up on this twelve-year-old game. It is an absolute classic because it still feels fresh and modern. It's hard thinking. It's rigorous. It's constantly shifting on you, but it's a great game. If you're feeling in the mood and you can tackle it, you tackle it in the right spirit. There's a reason it's hanging around. And every, I would say, even medium serious Euro gamer needs to try Kalos to see what all the fuss is about. Kalos for me, it's set and it's maintaining 
the standard for all of these things that we we take for granted in euros now with the added caveat that the provost and bailiff raise it above that crowd i think for the greater wider audience calis is a game you have to play because it is a brilliantly put together game fantastic for me it's just a little bit too mean. I will play it. I'll certainly play with Ronan because I don't mind stitching him up. But for for myself at home with Natalie, I've actually donated my copy to Ronan's dwindling collection of poultry collection of games so that he can get some more out of it than I would have. But yes, yeah, a fabulous game. Maybe just not for me. And that's Kalis. You're a proper wrongin. <laughs> okay, let's move on to some newer euro territory shall we and this one is first class a wonderful player 60 minute game from 2016 published by z-man designed by helmut Oli, who is one half of the russian railroads team each player is looking to build a rival to the Orient express by developing a route and their rolling stock over six rounds there are three phases of two rounds each and in each round each player is going to be taking three cards from a tableau of cards that it is 18 actions overall to develop this rival to the glamorous train route you start the game with a very short route with one station on and one bonus space you may get more route cards from the tableau, which will allow you to move your locomotive along them. And every time you hit a station, you score points. And every bonus space that you pass during each scoring phase, and there's one of each at the end of the phases, so that's every second round, you're going to be able to take those bonus actions and do things with them. You can also get extra cars into your two trains you start with. They both start with one zero value car in them and they make up to a maximum of length of 10. Also, these cars can be upgraded by taking cards and they will upgrade from zero to one to two to four to seven to 12. And that links to the amount of points they will score in scoring phases if you have moved your conductor far enough along the train in Russian Rail style in order to trigger those cars scoring. So cards to improve your route cards to move your locomotive cards to get extra cars into your train cards to upgrade those cards to move your conductors as you're building up your trains once you have five cars in either of them you're going to get a sixth mail car for free which is going to offer you a power if you get nine cars in those trains you're going to get a tenth car for free that is your locomotive that's going to give you some points every second round and also give you access to free upgrades of those cars to get them up to scoring more and more points if you get your conductor all the way along through the 10 cars to your locomotive you can get placed them in constantinople and get a bonus scoring for that too as i said every second round you're going to get some scoring and some bonuses you're going to look to take those bonuses they're usually extra things or extra actions to trigger and combo together and that's where a lot of the game is in order to trigger and combo and improve your train in order to score more and more points each time you score there's also some money in the game money will give you extra action in your turn whenever you want to use them or they'll be worth points at the end of the game or they will give you end game scoring cards which will provide multiples of points per types of cards you've taken it might be three points for every conductor card you've taken during the course of the game because you retain every card you take could be two points for every extra car card that you've taken whatever it may be also some of those end game scoring cards will be available in the third phase to be selected from the tableau in the first scoring round you're going to score something like 10 points maybe 12 in the third scoring round you'll be scoring more like 
a hundred points. This is a game that very much gathers momentum like a runaway train screaming through Europe. Sean, first class. First class one, right. So, Michael Menzelart, you can never go far wrong with Michael Menzel. He's very familiar, kind of that warm, sort of snuggly feeling you get from familiarity. Oh, yes, it's Michael. He looks fine. He looks okay. Is it a little bit fiddly with the setup and the tiny little cards? Nah, I think it's okay, to be honest with you. I don't think the cards are that small, and it's all quite clear. The most fiddly thing is, whenever you play, you have to play with two modules added in. That means that you're going to end up with nine different stacks of cards, each sets of three of which need shuffling together and spacing out properly. So that takes a little bit of time because the game is really, really quick. We've played a four-player game of it in 35 minutes. So when you're spending kind of five or ten minutes sitting around with the cards and, and shuffling them all together, that can be a little bit, little bit laborious. I didn't find the cards themselves too small or anything like that. Did you? A little bit, but then I've got shovels for hand. So, yeah, it's not... That's... <laughs> That size card is always going to be problematic to me, but I, I kind of saw you shuffling the different modules in and, and getting the three different stacks ready for the three different rounds, and yeah, just a kind of it, it felt like it was a little bit laborious. You're talking to a legendary fan, mate. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> well, yeah, it's yeah, fair enough. No. No, okay, fair enough. Okay, it's so no legendary. <laughs> <laughs> so I found that you were able to teach it to me very quickly. The one thing even while you're teaching well I still understood the fundamentals is that it was really daunting that first go after learning the game I was just really daunted I don't think that's going to change because you've got such a lot of choice going on you're thinking oh god where do I go but I felt after one or two turns all of a sudden, I knew where I was going, and the issues I had from that, from that daunting start, just completely faded away. I understood where everything went and what everything did after a couple of turns, and yeah, it was very quick to get into from that perspective. Your own path through the game starts to take its own shape once you start playing. So you start off, there's 18 cards available, no matter what the player count is. Now, they're in three rows of six. So when you start with the first turn, you've got 18 cards to choose from, and that can be slightly overwhelming. As soon as cards equal to the number of players in the game are taken from any of the three rows, the rest of that row wipes. You're down to a maximum of 12 cards to choose from, or probably one or two fewer. Your choices are limiting as the round goes on, and I think always at the beginning of a round, there's that tiny hesitation of, mm, ugh, crikey, what am I going to do now? Where am I going to go? What mail car powers am I going to use that will combo at the right time with maybe spending some of these coins. There's an interesting coin mechanism whereby you've got three columns for coins and the three columns have different actions associated with them. But whenever you use coins, you always refill from the left across to the right. So where and when to use coins, when to get the columns filled up most efficiently, how you can combo that with other actions. It can feel wide open, but as the eras go on, I feel like it narrows a bit, Sean. And that's when it starts coming into it clarity where your train is taking you yeah yeah absolutely by the time you get towards the end you are absolutely on point you know where you're going you know what you have to do to get there one of the things i wanted you to run through really because i've only played with two of the modules that are in this game but from what i can see in from reading up about the other modules just the two modules that i've played with 
I'm happy to keep on playing with those for quite a bit to come. Um, at least another 5 to 10, maybe 15 games I would get out of those. But adding those modules, surely first class has got that longevity in spades that we, we crave as gamers. Hmm. Well, now you've touched on a variety of points there. So <laughs> now let me take you back through. I'll tell you what the modules are, shall I, for, for everyone out there. So you have to shuffle two in. So the basic ones and A uh, is contracts. And contracts are a card you can take and they have something you have to have, some in-game state to fulfilled. And then on your turn, whenever you have fulfilled that, you can take it and it will give you either points or a bonus or some action or some reward for fulfilling that. So that's cool. A little bit of long-term planning, something you can take and you think that's where I'm heading. Cool, I can do that. The second one, B, has got celebrities and postcards. Now, they provide doublers either if they're celebrity they will go in a car off your train and when that car scores every second round it will double the points if you put them in a maximum 12 point obviously it'll become a 24.1 that will be familiar to anyone who's played russian railroads their eyes definitely leak over from how Oli's previous design into this one the postcards do something very similar but they do it on your route and whenever you get your bonus from being on a route it will double what you get from the bonus which can be incredibly handy now i always say that contracts and celebrity postcards are the two training wheels ones because they're the ones that give you most back they're the easiest to trigger they teach you how to play the game there's nothing complicated about them and i find that when i play with those that the scores are usually higher. So that's what I'm saying. I think they're more the training wheels and they kind of feel like the base game to me. The other modules that come into, there's a murder on the train module, which is module C in which there's evidence that goes around. You can take powerful cards that will give evidence against you. One of you is probably going to be a murderer and they want not to have the most evidence against them and they'll score 20 extra points. And it's completely random and completely nonsense and it's rubbish. And I really don't like that one. Okay, good. The last two are passengers and luggage. Uh, similar to sort of to celebrities, passengers go on the top train of yours. And when you fulfill the standard of class that they want in the carriage, they're going to give you money. And the money accumulates the more passengers you have, the more money you get back. Same thing for luggage, but it goes on the bottom for two trains. And that's going to give you points, accumulative points. You can score quite a lot of points from it if you carry on doing it, go along and keep upgrading to a, a kind of a low level upgrade all the way along your bottom train. And the last one is mechanics and switches and those are cars that go between the two trains and when you get the cars above and below to a certain standard if it is a mechanic it will give you a one-off bonus power of flip face down if it's a switch during your scoring it will give you constant scoring and bonus and extra whatever it may be so they can give you something kind to plan for to be honest like I say, murder, completely avoid it, it's pointless. The passenger luggage and the mechanics of switches feel less integral to the game than the contracts and the celebrities and the postcards. So they're okay. I was hoping for serious variety. I don't think I found it in all those modules, Sean. Yeah, well, that's disappointing. But as I said, I'm even just with the modules A and B, I, I think I would be happy to play it quite a few times more. Now, my next point, Ronan, is who, who do we think that this game is aimed at? I don't think it's a gateway game, but I do think it's possibly a next stage game. You could definitely start people on it after they've just got used to some of the things going on. Nothing nothing too taxing, lots of it, so I don't think it could be a gateway game. 
I think what makes it the next step forward, so everything within itself, you're just taking 18 cards. So one card, it does something very simple, move on, next action, whatever you're very quick. So it sounds on the surface like it could be a gateway game. I think the problem you get is as soon as you play with anyone who's kind of a gamer or whatever it might be, or, or just naturally good at games, is there are massive combos available from the bonuses, from the coins, from the contracts. And it's the ability to thread all those combos together, long-term plan, realize that if I spend these two coins here, get that mail car, spend that bonus action, then that accelerates the next thing, which will then kick back and give me a feedback loop, which will smash me and get me to Constantinople. Bomb, there's 60 points that if you didn't really know how Euros work, you probably wouldn't see the timing of it. So it is kind of to the game's credit that despite the very simple mechanisms, you're right, it's probably not a gateway game. It is next step, at least, despite the very short playtime. Yeah. Right, last bit, Roland. <laughs> actually, I, do, I want to quickly mention that a lot of people I've seen on Board Game Geek and reviewers are actually in complete agreement with you that the murder mystery module is complete rubbish. People absolutely despise it. Even people that love the game absolutely despise it so yeah you're you're singing from the same hymn book of a of a lot of people out there running with that well, one. with a module like that you want it to add something a bit different that's going to make you think in different ways this had something a bit different that's completely incongruous yeah. and doesn't feel like it fits within this game it's and a bit were, strange you were game. quite excited about that one as well so you kind of feel the one playing. i most wanted to play yeah got yeah. it <laughs> <laughs> It kind of leads us in to the theme of the game, Roland. How did you feel that the theme came across? Did you feel like you were a railway entrepreneur trying to build a rival to the Orient Express? Sure, I did my best. <laughs> I put on my London Underground uniform. I turned on my train radio. I made everyone talk to me in correct radio protocol using the phonetic alphabet. I did everything I could. What theme? Why is my, my conductor's walking along the train and apparently if he gets to the locomotive, he pops up in Constantinople. Haven't you got a job? Weren't you checking tickets? Aren't you in charge of passenger platform train interface safety? Where are you going to in Constantinople? Lots of touches like that. We just go, yeah, sure. Fine, whatever. Theme, let's just move past the theme, shall we? <laughs> Sean, move past it into your summary. Go, go, go. Summary, Ronan. Yeah, apart from... The... My introduction to your summary was more thematic than this game. Chicka, 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 chicka. Nice, nice. Thanks, thanks. Okay, so apart from feeling daunted right, right at the beginning, I quickly got into the flow of this game. I was enjoying it within minutes. Really easy to get into, really easy to play. Plays quickly, no downtime. One of the best things about any game is getting that pleasure of seeing your engine blossom towards the end. Very similar to... Uh, Russian railroads, when you start with nothing as Ronald described, and then you end up at hundreds of points at the end. It's, there's something just pleasurable about that. Very pleasant game to play. I'm thinking about adding it to my collection, even though Ronan has it. So that's what I feel about first class. I've been on a journey, Sean. Choo-choo. <laughs> I started off full of expectations and hopes and wonders at what to be on this train as we pulled slowly out the engine and I started to see what was going on. I took one card at a time and I could feel the momentum gathering and the steam building up. And then we hit full speed and I was very, very much impressed with this game and I thought, wow, this game is really pretty special. I couldn't wait to move to the next carriages and see the next modules. 
and then we hit a dark, dark tunnel on our journey, whereby the modules just let me down. And I thought, this train might not be all I had hoped it could be. And then I started thinking to myself, it is merely a train that I'll be on for 45 minutes or so. Why am I expecting to have this life-changing experience? Is it because it has all the trappings of a train that would be on a longer journey and take me through the highs and lows of a heavy euro? It's got modules. It's got economy. It's got bonuses. It's got chain reactions. But I'm not here for long enough to expect any more than what this game has given me. I need to judge it on its own merits. It needs to be in its own class of 45-minute games not two hour euros and right now i feel like i'm coming out of that tunnel and i'm looking at first class in the shining daylight of a quick thinky lighter euro and it comes up shining ship shape bristol fashion and chugging along at 80 miles an hour this is a very good game for a quick thinky workout that's first class Okay, a final game we are going to do in this episode is the football game. 27 release from the London Board Games Company and designed by Simon, Mark and Joe Pearson playing two to four players. So in the football game, each player is going to take charge of a football club for a season. Over six rounds, you will play six games and try to exceed expectations of your fans. And the expectations are changeable depending on what class of club you are. And that'll be decided at the beginning of the game. So in the game, you're going to buy and sell players. You're going to use tactic cards to enhance your score or inhibit your opponents. You're going to deal with injuries, react to headlines affecting your club. You're going to choose your first team, ready for the match day, and more. On a turn, you're going to roll four dice. Two of these dice have the colours that match the colours of the players and determine who is going to score in your team. Two of them are deciding if you have injuries or have headlines or have knocks to your players. Scoring depends on what level of club you are and the way you score individual games is on the level of players that you have. The players range from one to four and, as I said, are in different colours. And they're gonna, If you get a blue dice result, then your blue players in your team are going to score. And that's effectively what it is. It's a, it's a team management game. I was drawn to it because the guys are just super excited. We've met them a couple of times at various uh, UK Games Expos. And also because myself and Ronan, we've talked about in the past, we do love ourselves a football management game. So uh, we were hoping that this would fit in with that. Ronan. Let's start where you like to start, Sean. Let's do that. It's bright. There's lots of individual players in it individual managers the players have got funny names you can kind of recognize a lot of big personalities from the footballing world over the last 10 years and the players whatever you it has a winning look to it it's not realistic or anything like that but it kind of draws you in it makes you feel like okay cool this could be fun i love the artwork i do find it very comical as you said they have a lot of fun guessing who the player was that inspired the art or the player name even but those stereotypes the diver and the good looking press press favorite and the winger and the one that's always injured and all that kind of stuff that you get used to when you grow up around football love all that and i love the love 
that has gone into the design of this game, even up to the trophy that comes with it, a little plastic trophy that you get as the star player trophy. Very, very strong design quality. Hmm. Production quality, maybe. I don't know about design quality. We have to sorry, sorry. That. That's what I meant to say. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's start from the very beginning. The way that you're going to overall score victory points in the game is based upon your league position and the level of club that you are. So at the beginning of the game, you're going to get a certain number of cards dealt out to your players and you add up the total value of those players and then it decides whether you're a league contender or you're going to be challenging at the top end of the table or just a mid-table struggler or likely for relegation, whatever it might be. And then (laughs) throughout the game, set number of rounds, where you are in the league, you're going to score points according to and a big disparity in points according to what the expectation. I know, I know where you. you're going here. I know where you're going. For example, I might get a hand of cards that has a total value of players of 11. Sean might have a hand of cards that's got a total value of players of 10. If that comes over a borderline, Sean and I finish in the same position in the league each time it gets scored. Sean will destroy me in the game because he'll score so many other points. Now, I really like the idea behind it. Because there's lots of games that wouldn't tackle something like that, whereby I've got a strong squad, I'm expected to do better. I really like the idea of differentiation. The fact is, that strength of your opening hand lasts about 10 seconds. Because everyone will go immediately to the transfer market, buy better players, and then your starting hand is almost meaningless, yet has set the course for your success for the rest of the game. Yeah, it also affects the... Uh, you get a slight bit more money and a, a few more tactics cards, but I get what you're saying. The threshold between the different echelons of the league table, like from your Man United's to your uh, Everton's and the uh, Stokes, etc., there's not a big enough change there because obviously in the real life, Man United can go out and buy a hundred million pound player. Your Stokes aren't going to be able to do that, and in this game, you're being punished. Yeah, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. And it's fundamental if you want to play this game as anything sort of competitive or take it seriously. Now, it's not producers if you really want to take it seriously, but if you're looking for a game whereby it's a real test of skill and you've got raw balance, that straight away cuts the legs from under you. The second part to it then is that when you're in the league, if you're doing well it becomes much, much more difficult for where you are. Because when you you do a match, basically, you get a total score from your players. And what that score is tells you whether you move up or down the league table. You're not actually playing a match. You're not getting results. There's no like 2-1, 3-0, whatever it might be. You're just going, have you got this number of points overall from the players that have matched the dice roll? If you have, great. You can advance a certain amount. If you go lower, you're going to come down. Now, when you get up in the league, it handicaps you. Even if you do well, it will knock off one or two and send you down. So you might actually do okay in a match and still end up losing spaces in the league. Okay, it's a clear and obvious catch-up mechanism which you can have your issues with. What really then became a bit of an issue, again, if you want to take this as any sort of a serious game, is I could be in the upper echelons of the league the round before a scoring and be way ahead of the other players. And then have a bad game. And because of that catch-up mechanism, get whacked, boom, 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 down the league for the actual scoring and score really badly. And then climb back up it. And then for the scoring, have one bad turn, and boom, 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 down the league again and score really badly. 
because that scoring is periodical and the ability to jump up and down the league once you're doing well or poorly is huge. Yeah, I kind of felt like it may be even having a a minor scoring round and a major scoring round or something something to mitigate that to some degree because you're absolutely right. The timing that you really haven't got a lot of agency in of <laughs> when you go up and when you go down because it is on a dice roll and it can hamper you or help you. I'm feeling, I'm feeling you, Ronan. I'm feeling you. Okay. Right. Okay. My, one, one, one thing I'd like to bring up. I felt like the tactics cards could have been like the thing that really drove this game. Get away from a bit of a luck fest. I felt that they were lacking in imagination a little bit because they, they tended to be. You have a bet before the game and you place a tactics card okay if this player scores in your, in when you roll the dice then they score double or if this these two players don't score then they're going to get three points each or things like that or you got the obvious ones that happen after you roll the dice okay so if you roll you roll the dice you happen to have a card that says all your yellow players that score score three extra points well of course you're going to play it if you've got two yellow players that score so they were very obvious. They they weren't sort of tricksy enough for me, and I felt they missed a step by doing that. They're almost a part of the flat to deceive. So they might be your yellow and blacks players. If you score yellow and a black, you you get extra points in this game. So that's cool. So I set my team up with yellow and black players. Play that tactics card, and the dice roll, and no yellow and black gets rolled. So I've wasted the tactics card, and I've scored no points. So I'm going to drop down the league. But the the actual mechanism is there. Because it's like they can reward you for certain play. I'd like it if the tactics were upcoming. Let's say your opposition in two games time is vulnerable to yellow players, if you like. And then you can get rewarded for crafting your squad somewhat. At the moment, you'll just pick your biggest numbers, mostly. It might be like, well, if we've, if we've got a few teams that are vulnerable to yellow, why don't we get a yellow player? Let's put a yellow player we can. And sometimes we'll play them. And you can sort of plan ahead. What we want, Sean is much more agency, which we talk about in games. And here, there's not agency. Exactly what you said. It's a bet. It's a gamble. It's a roll of the dice. Whether I do well or not, I really don't have too much control over. I could do what I can do. I'll buy some good players in the transfer market. I'll try and make colours that match the tactics cards I've, I've drawn to try and roll along and try and ride a wave to success. But whether it happens or not, how much control do I have? What it really nuggets down to me in all this is that match resolution doesn't feel like a football match. Now, obviously, it has to be abstracted. Of course, it does to a huge degree. But I'm not getting a score. I've got really very little control. It's just a couple of dice and they kind of come up with a colour. Mm. There's not a lot of chance to change things around. We've talked about the colour dice. like So, okay, you're trying to match the colours of the players to the colours of the dice, and that's, that's very all very lucky. Yeah, unless you have a player of each colour, then you know you're going to score at some stage, but you're never, never going to score enough to really progress up the league. Especially like when you're doing well in the league, because your expectations are higher. Yeah. You kind of almost have to go, right, in order to get anywhere in the league now... I have to play an all-blue team. Yeah, because you really so do have to push So I can get 20 it, yeah, points. Yeah. yeah, and then it really is hit or miss. Then it's like, I'm going to score 40 <laughs> points and none. So, okay, so we've talked about those dice. Then you've got another two dice. 
the nature of dice they're completely random but but you, you that was almost the most fun part for me though that kind of randomness on them you could have just spent all your money you don't get a lot of money and so when the big cards come up you tend to make like if, if a five or a four comes up then yeah you're like yeah pretty much if i can afford it i'm going to get that because that's going to score me the most points and then that that player could get injured Straight away. Like, if you're around in, they can play be out for the rest of the game if you roll horribly with your dice It's, a, it's a funny old game, Sean. It's a funny old game. It is a funny old game. You could have a football <laughs> game with that uh, element of risk, but you buy a big player, and, oh, Christ. But I was thinking... And waste all that money. It's a yeah, blow. Yeah, no, no. You, you got that. But I was thinking maybe it'd be more of a decision... Those knocks, which act pretty much as injuries, they're kind of the same thing, apart from you don't have to roll a dice to get them back. Could the, the knocks be like a precursor to an injury? Do you take a risk on a player that's got a knock and have them go out? That kind of thing. So you're making a choice rather than do I have a team of all blue or a team of maybe yellow and blue or red and blue or black and blue? Like, just give me a little you bit You always like blue, agency. though. You can't play a team without blue, no? There's no white, so obviously. Oh, yeah, right. Tottenham. Okay. Right. <laughs> uh, things like choices in tactics cards. How about give me a tactics card whereby if all your players are this color and this color, or if you've got a blue midfielder, you can get a reroll on the dice. There's lots of ways they could have brought a bit more control into this. I kind of feel like they've marketed it at the hobby market. It's come out to people like you and I who are going to look, like I said a few minutes ago, for something that this isn't. It's almost, I kind of feel a bit mean reviewing it on the game pit where we look at designer hobby games. And I know this came from designers, I've met the designers, and I know that they are hobby gamers and they like deeper games, but that's not what they've produced. They're trying to cross over, actually, just as a slight aside. They were on Talk Sport recently. And they were, right? yeah, they were on the talk sport. I think possibly with Jason Cundy on the drive time afternoon stroke evening show. And they had a little section talking about this. I didn't actually hear it because I was a Kickstarter backer. They sent an email around to say, no, we're going to be on talk sport, which I thought was a really interesting way to go. So they're not necessarily pushing it now with gamers. So maybe they think, hang on. This isn't deep enough for gamers. We're now going to push it towards the football community. Hmm, interesting. Maybe they're the ones that's going to make the fools out of us, Sean. Because do you know what? That is exactly what this game is for. It's for a casual audience who's not looking for Kalos. He's not looking for first class. He's not looking for ethnos even. He's looking for a bit of fun. It's bright, like you say. It's got recognisable characters. Obviously, I love the theme. We love the theme. There are some nice touches in there. Players of games, maybe, that are conditioned towards more luck, who are used to having dice sort of dictate the results for them. Now... I, it's hard to kind of talk this and not become condescending. And I don't mean to be condescending. Those players are having much more fun with this game probably than we are. And best of luck to them. And I think a move towards talk sport and chain stores and a more casual audience is where the football game will thrive because it has got some positive points to it. I know we've been negative because we have to review it the way we review other games on the show to give you a fair impression of what it's like. However, because of the presentation, because I love the theme, I would play it again. 
But I know that I'm probably in quite a limited corner of the market on that one. This is a very personal thing. Judged as a hobby game, there's a bit lacking there. Sean? I've come across, as you have, quite negative. It's not the worst thing I've ever done. It's not the worst time I've ever spent. There is a lot of laughing and joking that goes on and just generally just mocking each other when you have a bad role, etc. I had a little bit of fun. I had, a, I had a lot of fun playing this, but maybe not because of the game itself and the game mechanisms. I don't think there's any real choices. Everything either happens to you or is obvious for you to do you're just kind of in this game you're guessing and you try and mitigate if you can against poor guesses it does have the essence of football for me but mainly in the production rather than the mechanisms of the game itself i really wanted to like it more than i did and i'm with Rodan. i would play it again but for me the football game is probably not one that i'm going to keep in my collection so best of luck to the guys i really like the guys and i hope they they go from strength to strength but this one's not not for me but there you have it that's the football game Thank you so much for joining us with those six reviews this time on the Game Bit. Sean, thanks to you very much. Thank you very much, Ronan. And can I just have a quick minute just to talk about something that's uh, been impressive? You can have me. a minute the same length as every other minute. Ha <laughs> 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 oh, What a old boy. So I've been really, really impressed with the gaming community, but in particular, Board Game Trading and Chat UK, which is a Facebook group. There was a story about them on the re- on the recent Dice Tower episodes of their podcast, where they helped out a, a board gaming shop or a retailer or club down in Southampton when they, they had their windows smashed and one of the guys put a post up about it saying, listen, we need, could we help these? And they raised a load of money to repair the window, replace the lost funds, and, and they've been at it again. And I just wanted to just give them a shout-out because it's absolutely amazing. They, they've decided to have some raffles for charity for one of the members who needed a, a special mobility cycle to just be able to get around. And loads of people donated really really cool prizes for raffles and they raised like over twelve thousand pounds in in a matter of a few days and they even went on to a second charity to help a, a terminally ill child so absolutely amazing people like games law a very popular uk games retailer they donated a really really amazing prize of about seven or eight really recent games and then on top of that they decided hang on that's not enough we're going to give out some some prizes to people who didn't win. So draw another three names. I happen to be one of those names. Incredible. This community, the way it comes together, Ronan, and I'm, I'm proud to be a member of the UK gaming community. Very much so, and especially this part of it, and a lot of respect to Chris Bromley and Martin Anderson for organising all of that and everyone else who has helped them. I really love the positivity that's around that group and the openness as well. I was chatting this week with someone about... There was an interview with Scott Alden on Heavy Cardboard a couple of weeks ago. Go and listen to it because, firstly, it's fascinating. He's the guy who runs Board Game Geek. And secondly, his struggles to get into the board gaming community 20 or so years ago and how it was closed and it was all secret arcane knowledge and he had to be met and vetted and he had to go along to game nights before they'd even allow him into certain groups, whatever it might be. 
it is a hobby in this country, I think especially, that has slightly been closed a bit before. And with Chris's group, perhaps more so than other groups on Facebook, it's opening and it's welcoming and it embraces people from diverse demographics and it's saying look we're here be part of it come and join us chat share your thoughts so much community spirit there and this is obviously an absolutely amazing example of it whereby so many people have a little bit of generosity has made a huge difference to someone's life but just generally constantly every day you just said it there's posts on there every few minutes if ever you feel like you're not part of something special there is a very special, it's UK-based, but very special Facebook group to go and think, do you know what? There's a lot of lovely, lovely people in this hobby and there are people helping us to grow it and be part of it. And you can buy T-shirts and people wear them all over and send photos and saying, look, I'm here representing them. And you can be part of that. There's no secret way of getting in. Just go in and say, I'd like to join and, and they will let you in. So I think it's a fantastic story, Sean. Thanks to Luke Hector for sharing it on the Dice Tower. And here's some more positivity and love going the way of those guys. I am reading the post every day. I like to thumb as many as I can. I don't like to talk too much on there. Sometimes I feel like if you do a podcast and stuff and you're commenting all the time, it feels a little like you're trying to promote yourself all the time. So, And that's not what I feel that group's for. But I do stick loads of likes on there. So if you're a member of it, maybe you may have noticed me liking your post now and then because I'm on there pretty much every day doing it. Anyway, what about for us, Sean? What's coming up? What's coming up? We have got a revamped vault coming up in the next few episodes whereby we have a guest put in five games and then we vote on them and we come up with one we have got some reviews ah a role-playing game special i know that not everyone might want to listen to it but some of our friends my brother has been playing role-playing games recently i've had a little dabble and just to chat about role-playing games board games on them the difference what's it been like for some people who've never played role-playing games going into role-playing games how they found them and comparing them to our little part of the hobby although of course it is all a lovely rainbow spectrum anything else exciting coming up sean well we, we say every episode Vernon, we have got essen looming and i am confirmed as an essen attendee i couldn't be more excited yeah we're both of us will be there i'll be there wednesday you'll be there thursday we're both gonna be there till saturday where we have to head home and deal with real life stuff but we will be giving pre live and post coverage i can assure you we're also going to finish off our top 50 that should be dropping sometime in september excellent so we will hopefully catch you all then thank you for joining us this time thank you ronan and thank you everybody as always we are very proud members of the dice tower network go there and to the dice tower itself for gaming goodness galore if you wish to email us we're on the game pit podcast at gmail.com We're on social media. We have a Facebook page. Please go and give us a like there. We are on Twitter at GamePit Podcast. And we are on Instagram with plenty of photos of of our gaming exploits. We also have a Board Game Geek Guild. And that's probably the best place to come and engage us if you've just got some comments about the show or just something you want to share with us in general. If you wish to download the episodes, we are on Stitcher, iTunes, and Podbeans. And please give us a a like if you do like what we do on all of those. So thank you very much for listening. Music by E. Aaron.
Bye. Bye.